Welcome to California Highways Route by Route. This podcast explores everything about the numbered highways in California, from Route 1 along the coast to US 395 along the Sierras, from Route 8 in the south to Route 139 in the north. Brought to you by the California Highways webpage in Gribble Nation. I'm Daniel Fagan. I do the California Highways webpage. I'm Tom Fear. I'm one of four admins for Gribble Nation. I'm probably the one, if you've ever read our page, who's doing blogs on California. This is episode 1.06, Building a State Highway System. We're talking about CEQA and the reality that sets in. And before we jump into the last time, A, I want to apologize for this episode getting up a little bit late. It took us a little extra time to get the interview arranged. And I also want to apologize for being a little bit hoarse. I was recently at a conference for work, and I came back with a little bit of a sore throat. So we get to deal with that. Last time on California Highways Route by Route, we saw a significant amount of highway construction under the administration of Earl Warren, Goodwin Knight, and Pat Brown. The great renumbering where the numbering systems were coordinated, regularized, and brought into alignment with the legislative numbers. This also saw a significant cutback in the U.S. routes in California. The start of the freeway revolt in places like San Francisco and Beverly Hills. The election of Ronald Reagan as governor. Significant increases in cost of construction with no increase in budget. Passage of the California Environmental Quality Act. This episode, we're going to bring you up to today. Yes, and that's about 50 years in one episode. We'll see how the CEQA transformed the process of building a freeway. We'll see a shift in vision from statewide planning to regional planning. We'll see a shift in focus from highways to the broader notion of transportation planning. And these are fundamental shifts. They move us from an era of simply building roads to an era of moving people. They explain why we'll likely never see major freeways constructed again, certainly not as they were done in the 50s or 60s. And they raise the question of how the existing highway system can be transformed for the future. As we enter 1969, California has a large system of state highways. About 85% of the system is constructed. The work is proceeding and completing much of the rest. Only few route numbers are still in the planning stages. Ronald Reagan is the governor, and CEQA has just been passed. So how are we going to approach 50 years of highway history? Chronology is not the answer. That will be really difficult. So instead, we're going to focus on some specific areas, some major route changes, some governance changes, the California Environmental Quality Act and its impact, and the changes in focus from the statewide planning to regional planning. Interesting route changes. Post-1970, the major route change themes were adjustment and extensions routes. We're not going to discuss in detail. We'll get into that more as we go into individual routes in these podcasts. Selective reorganization in areas, relinquishment of local control. During 1970, mostly adjustments to extensions of routes, definitions of a number of little routes. Uh, some examples would be like Route 281 uh, and Route 284. So like with 284, that's just the pre-existing reservoir road. Deletion of some never-to-be-built routes like Route 268, Mulholland Highway. Uh, during 1972, more route reorganizations, notable changes, reorganizations in San Diego, Imperial, and Riverside counties. Some examples will be Route 111, 125, 115, 117, and 195. In 1974, there was a major reworking of I-15, Route 71, 79, 194 and 371 in Southern Riverside County. This was the whole Temescal Canyon and Anagua routings and stuff like that. I believe that's also when I think it was R2 or R3 got incorporated as 371. Some weird stuff there. 1975 was some minor editorial corrections to the route. And the most significant change then was the creation of I-780 from I-680 and the creation of a new 680. In 1980, we saw the creation of Route 110, I should say the renumbering of Route 11 into Route 110 and I-110, and that's when we saw the big reroutings and renumberings in Sacramento. So what had been planned as I-880 across the top of Sacramento became I-80. The unsigned Route 51 then became the designation for Old 80, which became Business Route 80, and there was an extension of US 50. Um, it's a crazy thing in Sacramento. This is also when I-980 was created. 
There's also where you get the federally designated Interstate 305, which you'll never see referenced anywhere in California. That's involved with that whole Sacramento thing. 1982, the creation of I-215 out of what had been Interstate 15 East. I-15 East had been designated with a duplicated number, but was secretly legislative route 194. You would never see that on a map, but that's how they got around duplicating a route number. 1983, adjustment of Route 73 for the San Joaquin Transportation Corridor. 1984, creation of Interstate 710 out of the second Route 7 and Interstate 880 out of Route 17, extension of Interstate 580 across the top of San Francisco Bay, adjustment of Route 103, the Route 84 and Route 114 swap, and the redefinition of Route 211 over what had been planned as the extension of Route 1 through the Lost Coast. In 1986, we saw the definition of Route 905 down in San Diego. This is not an interstate, maybe one day, but who knows. 1988 saw the creation of the transportation corridor routes, um, Route 231, Route 241, which were rearranged in 1996. 1990 saw the creation of the new Route 7 down by the border. 1991 saw the deletion of Route 480 and the creation of Route 261, another transportation corridor toll road down in Orange County. And as I said, 1996 saw the final rearrangement of those routes and adjustments in the desert for Route 138 and Route 48. 1998, Route 30 is subsumed into Route 210. Route 57 is extended to Route 210, although Interstate 210 is still existing on the federal side as far as being still Interstate 210, but that's something we can get into at another time. 2019, the deletion of the northern stub of I-710 from the freeway and expressway system. The mid-1990s also started the era of deletions and permitted relinquishments. This basically deleted portions of routes that would never be built. It permitted the CTC to relinquish other portions to governing cities with appropriate signage, never to be adopted again. And this worked where they would modify the definition of the route to say, the CTC is permitted to relinquish, and then at some point, the CTC would pay money or improve the road, and then the actual relinquishment would happen. And the subsequent legislative changes just often reflected those relinquishments. Most importantly, no new routes have been defined since Route 11 in 1994. And that's why you saw us jump basically from 1998 to 2019. There really wasn't that much interesting happening other than relinquishments in that time period. There were also governance changes during this time. In 1970, the Office of Transportation Planning and Research opened. In 1972, Caltrans was created, and this absorbed the Department of Public Works, the Department of Aeronautics, the Divisions of Highways, Mass Transit, Aeronautics, Transportation Planning, Legal Administrative Services. One of the things I noticed as I was preparing a future episode is that it did not include, I think, the part of the California government that regulated railroads, which is interesting. So they still separate railroads for commerce from railroads for transportation. It did require preparation of the California Transportation Plan, and most importantly, it reflected the change in focus from highways to multiple modes of transportation and from a central planning agency to regional coordination. In 1975, the California Transportation Plan was published, and this had a number of fundamental premises for California transportation. First, that land use and transportation decisions must be more closely tied together. So we have an integrated view. Second, an increase in population will put greater demands on transportation. Third, additional funding is vital because funding level levels for state and local roads were not sufficient to preserve the public's investment. Fourth, the funding sources and allocation process should be brought in line with today's needs and priorities, not the priorities of the past. Fifth, the Streets and Highways Code should be revised to minimize allocation inequities among counties and between counties and cities before there were really very fixed allocations for the counties. And this is also reflected in the sixth premise, which is the state should eliminate the north-south split and county and transportation district minimums and substitute instead a control formula under the California Transportation Plan for county groupings, which was similar in principle. Seventh, the public transportation needs of non-auto users were really um, significant and required immediate state attention. Eighth, the peak period congestion on urban highways, roads, streets, and major airports will continue to worsen 
regardless of the emphasis placed on other modes of travel. Ninth, transportation facilities should be planned to minimize consumption of prime agricultural land and facilitate movement of agricultural products. Tenth, air quality in California will be dramatically improved in the next 20 years, which in many ways it was due to emission control standards for automobiles. And lastly, if transportation energy consumption were to be substantially reduced within the next five years, the most effective action would be in the area of implementing strong disincentives to auto travel. They want to discourage people from individual driving cars. 1977, the California Transportation Plan Task Force released recommendations. Basic transportation service should be available to all Californians. Planners should emphasize better use of existing transportation resources rather than concentrating on additions to current capacity. Planners should consider social, environmental, and economic effects during and planning project selection. Planners should rely on market incentives and competition as opposed to regulation to protect the environment, conserve natural resources, and reduce transportation costs. Regulation should be a tool of last resort. The use of user charges was strongly recommended as a principal element of transportation finance system due to reasons of efficiency and equity. The need for flexibility in terms of project selection and significant public participation in the planning and decision-making process was emphasized. So something you kind of see like in modern times in my area in Fresno County, kind of regarding different uses of transportation would be like the high-speed rail or even more so like Amtrak, uh, which we do have a fairly busy Amtrak service within Fresno County, especially out of Fresno. And I think out here where I live in Southern California, these recommendations are what led to the growth of the high-occupancy vehicle lanes, the high-occupancy transit lanes. Um, I would think going back to this time is when you saw the start of van pooling incentives coming out for companies. You saw the increased emphasis on transportation and getting people onto buses and, in general, the emphasis of transit. I don't know whether when the various coaster and commuter rail stuff was started, but I want to say it was around this time. I think it was also around this time that you saw a big push to expand systems like BART. And this all came out of these task force recommendations. Just as we saw consolidation for Caltrans in 1978, the California Transportation Commission was created. It replaced the California Highway Commission, the State Transportation Board, the Aeronautics Board, and the California Toll Bridge Authority. Again, note not the mention of railroads here. And the purpose was to advise and assist the governor and legislature in, in formulating and evaluating state policies and plans for transportation programs. So the CTC planned Caltrans implement, and that's the distinction you really see. The CTC has fiscal control over the planning functions of the Highway Commission and the State Transportation Board, and this process involved requiring a five-year state transportation improvement program with input from local and regional government. So it's no longer just the Highway Commission deciding what to do. And this was to be updated biennially, which means every two years. During 1981, a two-cent increase in the gas tax came. Even with this, California was then ranked last in the state's per capita spending on highways. The increase came with a provision that shifted its priorities to, in order, maintenance, rehabilitation, and reconstruction of existing highways for the purpose of protecting the public's investment in the system safety improvements for the purpose of reducing the number and severity of traffic accidents, operational improvements to the existing system for maximum service efficiency, new construction, other purposes including landscaping, planting, litter pickup, and compatibility improvements. This priority is significant to look at because new construction was now fourth on the list. Your focus was really on maintaining minor improvements like adding aux lanes, which are operational improvements, Safety improvements, so improved barriers, rumble strips, resurfacing, things like that. New construction was down near the bottom of the list, and this is where we really see that priority shift from the build it, build it, build it we saw in the 50s and the 60s. In 1987, the last Caltrans district was created. It was split off of District 7, represented just Orange County because they thought they had their own needs. In many ways, it was created due to delays in construction of Orange County projects. Orange County claimed that a separate Caltrans staff was needed to ensure the county got its fair share of Caltrans resources and to keep proposed projects from falling further behind schedule. 
The creation reflected this regional shift and how the Orange County region was in many ways different than the rest of Southern California, the broader L.A. County, Ventura County region. 1991 and later in 1998 saw new federal surface transportation legislation that changed the federal transportation program. And this legislation shifted the balance of power between state and regional transportation agencies by granting the regional agencies a significant degree of financial and planning independence. And it moved the state into the role of being the coordinator of metropolitan area plans, overseeing rural and intercity transportation concerns, and a compiler of these documents into a long-range 20-year planning document. You no longer had the state saying, here's where we want a freeway, irrespective of whether the region needs it, which if you look at the old maps in many ways, like Southern California and the Bay Area, you saw Caltrans doing, they would just say, yep, we think a freeway should go here. It sounds good. It's a nice line on the map. Who cares whether they need it? To There really needed to be a need from the regional area. And I think that's why you saw the emphasis of many mountain routes, many rural freeways. Um, the regions just didn't need them. The California Environmental Quality Act passed in 1969 and came effective in 1970. It coordinated it with acts on the federal level. Per the California Environmental Quality Act page, the California Environmental Quality Act requires public agencies to look before they leap and consider environmental consequences of their discretionary actions. The California Environmental Quality Act is intended to inform government, decision makers, and the public about the potential environmental effects of proposed activities and prevent significant avoidable environmental damage. The CEQA requires an extensive process to determine environmental impacts before a single shovel of dirt is turned. It requires public review of those impacts, in fact, multiple cycles of public review. It requires development of mitigations for those impacts. Sometimes those mitigations occur on the highway. Sometimes those mitigations occur elsewhere. It requires CTC acceptance of those mitigations. And failure to do this process right can send things right back to the start. If you go back to our sample episode on Route 105, you'll see this with what happened on the Century Freeway. They didn't quite get the environmental planning right, and they had to go back to the beginning. And that added a lot of time. Environmental impacts are more than just endangered species and plants. Uh, can include impacts on people in neighborhoods, impacts on heritage sites, ancillary impacts of diverted traffic and construction, climate impacts. It requires multi-stage public involvement in projects. For example, it requires a notice of preparation of environmental impact reports, review and public hearings on reports, acceptance of findings by the CTC and Cal EPA. So if you're kind of hearing some commonalities to like what you would hear on the federal level with environmental impact statements and environmental protection agencies, because it, it pretty much is the same thing, but on the state level, and you'll also hear a lot of terms related to this. If you see things like DEIR, that's a draft environmental impact report. If you see FEIR, that's a final report. If you see things like negative determination, that means there was no environmental impact. If you hear of things like a mitigated determination, that meant there was an impact, but we figured out how to reduce the impact of it in some way. And so you'll see all these terms flying around. And it's important to understand them so when you see these announcements of public involvement, you can participate intelligently and make your opinion heard. Now is the time in the podcast when we bring in a guest to talk about a subject related to this episode. Today's guest is Gary Rugeron, hopefully I pronounced that right, who is going to talk to us about how the CEQA works and its impact on highways. Gary was the District 5 environmental branch chief from June 1980 until December 2010 when he retired from Caltrans. He started as an environmental planner in District 7 in March 1979, one of five environmental planners hired off the very first environmental planner civil service exam, and he was directly involved with Caltrans during the early days of CEQA and NEPA, which is the National Environmental Protection Act, and is joining us to give insights on the impact of the California Environmental Quality Act. Gary, can you introduce yourself and tell us what you've done? My name is Gary Ruggeroni, and I was employed with Caltrans from March of 1979 through December of 2010. Started in 
District 7, which is the Los Angeles area, as an environmental planner in 1979 and was one of only five new hires at that time for the new environmental planner civil service classification. Caltrans had developed the civil service classification for environmental planners, but they hadn't actually developed a testing protocol for it. Almost all of the new people working in the environmental planner classification were previously engineers or right-of-way agents, sometimes administrators. They were looking for a new thing to do, and they moved into this new, exciting field of environmental analysis and dealing with CEQA. So District 7, the Los Angeles area, was one of the first to use the new civil service list and recruit environmental planners that actually passed a test and had an educational background for environmental planning. Before we get into the list of questions we had, I was reading this morning on Route 105, which we did our sample episode on, noting that you were at District 7 in 1979. That means you were doing environmental planning at the same time they had all the environmental stuff on the Century Freeway, which, as I recall, was 1982. Um, Well, by 1980, I had moved from District 7. Though I did work a little bit on the Century Freeway, I... I, uh, was involved with some of the historic resource evaluations they were doing on the Century Freeway for the time that I was there. But I was only in District 7 for one year, three months. The story I, I like to tell is one year, three months, two days, and several hours. And then I moved on to District 5, which is in San Luis Obispo. So I, I did work on the Century Freeway briefly, and I worked on the 110 freeway, uh, the transit way between Los Angeles and Long Beach. I uh, worked a little bit on the early phases of that, uh, but I wasn't in District 7 for very long. Before CEQA came into being, what were the primary factors that drove where highways were constructed? Did they consider environmental impact at all before the passage of the act? Full disclosure, I wasn't there then. But my understanding was that, yeah, they did look at it, but it just wasn't a primary focus. It was a secondary thing or maybe a tertiary thing that if it didn't get in the way of anything else like cost or where they wanted to put the highway or if it wouldn't delay the project or anything, they might include environmental protections. But it wasn't a primary factor that they were looking at. So how did they plan the highways back then? What was the pre-CQA process? The highways were determined, it was almost all the division of highways making those decisions, and it was based on engineering criteria, safety, level of service, structural and functional needs, and cost, both construction and right-of-way cost. Those were the key things that they were looking at in determining where the projects were going to be going. How did the original version of CEQA impact highway development and construction? What was the difference in impact for projects already in the planning stages or already construction versus new start? First of all, I want to bring out that it's more than just CEQA. It's all the environmental regulations involved with that and including NEPA because NEPA actually ends up being an even larger issue with transportation projects because almost all of the transportation projects and certainly the bigger ones have federal funding. So they have to meet NEPA as well as CEQA. Caltrans is one of those agencies that, and the Federal Highway Administration, working with the Federal Highway Administration, had to come up with a hybrid environmental document that met both the requirements of CEQA and NEPA. And they're two different things. What happened when both CEQA and NEPA came on board, and they were right about the same time, it required the project engineers to bring in input from the public, from resource agencies, from a lot of different partners. So previous to that, the engineers were pretty much calling the shots. Now they had to coordinate with a lot of people, get public input on things, spell out all of the impacts associated with a project, and allow people to see what kinds of impacts there were going to be. There were actually some federal laws that came into play even before CEQA and NEPA that started this whole process. So it goes all the way back to right after World War II when there was a huge attempt to rebuild a lot of the United States. Urban renewal and the interstate highway system were the biggest things, and they were really pushing development of roadway systems and urban renewal. 
the main issue that they were looking at at those times was cost. So when they were locating a highway facility, they were looking for, in many cases, the cheapest place to put it. That ended up being on public lands and ended up being in disadvantaged communities um, because the land was cheaper there. They could put a highway through a minority community much easier than they could through Beverly Hills or something like that. The land was cheaper. The people tended to be less connected as far as contacting their congressmen or whatever and complaining about a project. So the projects moved through quicker and they were a lot cheaper, but they also resulted in a lot more impact, especially in those communities. And as far as urban renewal is concerned, it infected a lot of historic resources. They were being torn down and new things being built without any real regards to historic resources. So in 1966, uh, the federal government passed the National Historic Preservation Act, and also at the same time, they passed what was called Section 4F of the Department of Transportation Act. Section 4F protected parklands, wildlife and, and waterfowl refuge, and historic resources, and basically said that you have to look at avoidance alternatives. And if those avoidance alternatives are prudent and feasible, they have to be selected. You don't really have a choice. You also have to work with the officials who have jurisdiction over those resources and get their concurrence on the analysis you've done. So some of the strongest environmental protections came with Section 4F and with the National Historic Preservation Act. When NEPA was passed, NEPA was an umbrella regulation that pulled in all of these other environmental laws that were being passed either just before NEPA or just afterwards, such as the uh, National Historic Preservation Act, Section 4F. In later, uh, just right about that same time, the Federal Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, all these different regulations setting up these agencies with permit authority over projects. NEPA pulled all of that in together, and it required that before a decision could be made to approve a project, there had to be an environmental document that looked at all of these different resources and coordinated with the officials with jurisdiction over those resources, such as the Army Corps of Engineers, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And once CEQA was passed, they also did the same thing in the state, California Department of Fish and Game at the time, it's now Fish and Wildlife, developed their own version of the Endangered Species Act. That was pulled in under CEQA also. All of these different laws were all affecting the projects at the same time. We've got more people being involved just because documents were being written to let everybody know this is the project that's being proposed and here are the impacts associated with it and what do you think about it? There were a lot of people who had a lot of say about it. Local agencies started getting a lot more involved in the the projects and whether they wanted to have those kinds of impacts in their area. Prior to the environmental laws, rather than the engineer being in the driver's seat and making all the decisions on that, now he had to share that responsibility with a lot of other input coming in. That brings up the question of, so I've got highway development going and they've announced a draft environmental report and I'm a member of the public. What's the best way for me to read that environmental impact report? There's lots of detail in there. What, what's important for a novice to pull out of it? Before I answer that part, I want to point out that the best way to become involved if you're a citizen and you want to become involved in the project is to get involved before that draft environmental document is there. Because the way the transportation planning process is set up now, there's a regional transportation improvement program that's prepared, and that drives which projects are going to be funded and those projects then go to the environmental document. Getting involved in those earlier stages, there's also an environmental document with those. And being involved at that early stage improves your administrative record. Your comments at those stages need to be addressed and carried forward as the project moves forward. And if they aren't, it increases your ability to challenge a project. 
once you've got a draft environmental document and you start looking at that, in my opinion, the best way to review those documents is start off with the summary and look to make sure that all of the various resource issues that should likely be considered on a project have been considered. Have they left out some things? So the summary is going to tell you that because it's going to list all of the different things. Then you can focus on the ones which are most pertinent to your interests and see how the analysis looks and whether they've covered all of the things associated with that particular area. There's often a lot of lawyers who get involved in the environmental documents, just take a shotgun approach and challenge everything. But a local citizen, that's a lot harder to do. They don't have the time and ability. So focusing on the specific areas that they have the most interest and knowledge about and seeing how that is addressed in the environmental document and whether the analysis that's being carried forward in that is accurate or is it complete. Since the original environmental laws were passed in the early 70s, what changes have happened? What, what have they changed and what do you have to do in this process? It's been changing all along. Almost every year, there were updates to CEQA and NEPA, both of them. Some of those were attempts to streamline the environmental process, not to kill it or reduce the effects it has on a project because they want the good effects, but they wanted to streamline the process. When they first started both CEQA and NEPA, People didn't really know what to do. They had some general guidance about you've got to study everything. And so for larger projects, they ended up with these encyclopedic analysis of these projects. A lot of the information was not of any real importance, but they would cover everything because nobody really knew what they were supposed to do with that. And so both CEQA and NEPA changed to require scoping. In other words, to focus the environmental document on specific areas of interest and where you might have real issues associated with the project. Scoping was added, the notice of preparation under CEQA and the notice of intent under NEPA to provide the early input from the public, but more importantly, from resource agencies that are going to be involved in the project so that the environmental document as it's written is focused on the real issues associated with the project. It's not just everything being lost in this encyclopedia that's hard for people to find anything. So that was a big improvement in environmental documents. They're still incredibly long, especially on major projects, but they're focused more on the real environmental impacts that people and agencies are interested in. One of the biggest changes that occurred was when the Federal Highway Administration decided that they would consider delegation of NEPA responsibilities to the states. That ended up being a huge streamlining effort for Caltrans. Before NEPA delegation or or assumption of NEPA, all environmental documents had to be approved by the Federal Highway Administration. It was a whole additional layer of review. Any coordination with other federal agencies like U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or the Army Corps of Engineers or EPA, all these regulatory agencies on the federal side had to go through Federal Highway Administration. With NEPA delegation, that was all assigned to Caltrans. So it eliminated whole review process. It didn't eliminate the need for doing all these things. They still had to be done. And there was a audit of Caltrans for the probably the first 10, 15 years. They were audited every year. They would select projects and FHWA would make sure that what Caltrans was doing was actually carrying out the intent of NEPA. And they always were. They did a good job of it. But it reduced the time associated with producing the environmental documents greatly. And it also reduced the amount of time involved in coordinating with the other federal agencies because Caltrans could now coordinate directly with those agencies rather than having to go through Federal Highway Administration and having them coordinate with the agency. So that was huge. There were a couple of laws that were passed. Safety Lou was passed in 2005, which also streamlined some environmental processing. It still required you to meet the intent of the environmental laws, but the processing part of it was streamlined from that. 
and then there was also in, uh, I think it was 2017, there was a FAST Act, which came up with a whole bunch of streamlining opportunities. It's my understanding at that point that didn't really affect a whole lot because most of, at least in Caltrans, most of the opportunities didn't result in a whole lot of savings of time and introduced some new guidelines that actually made it more difficult to change what they were already doing and would have added additional time to it. So there have been some streamlining opportunities and improvements. Again, it hasn't affected the actual environmental analysis that was done. That's still done, and the environmental protection is still there. You mentioned that one of the changes was better defining what the scope that was covered in the report was. What areas are covered in terms of scope? in an environmental analysis for this report? The areas that are covered in an environmental document are basically the project proposal and alternatives, including the no-build alternative. That's always required that you look at the no-build. There needs to be a consideration of the setting in an area. What does the area look like? A good understanding of what kinds of resources have the potential to be affected an analysis of the actual impacts associated with the project and the alternatives, identifying which alternatives are significant. And with CEQA, there is a requirement that if you have significant impact, they have to be mitigated. You have to come up with mitigation for significant impact. If you can't, now sometimes that's not possible, or the significant impacts are not reasonable because of stream costs or something like that, the CEQA lead agency can still approve that project, but they have to prepare statements of overriding considerations, which essentially lay out the rationale for why they can't fully mitigate an impact. But with mitigation, which has to be considered an environmental document, mitigation includes a lot more than just mitigating significant impact. All transportation projects following the passage of both CEQA and NEPA look at avoidance, minimization, and compensatory mitigation, and even extend that even farther in some projects, major projects, to enhancement measures, which are another form of mitigation. So CEQA requires mitigation, but only for significant impacts, where the impact goes above a threshold of significance. That's one of the big differences between CEQA and NEPA. NEPA does not have thresholds of significance. In fact, NEPA does not encourage the use of the term significant. Instead, they look at impacts in context and intensity. So they look at the context of the impact. That would be like, are we affecting a real small area and not great importance, but the impact is really high? That would be the intensity. Or is it a situation like you're affecting a federally listed endangered species, but the impact is only minor, the intensity? It's a sliding scale between whether that's a substantial impact, which is the word that they use more often in NEPA, than significant. CEQA is different, where the resource agency actually came up with CEQA guidelines which identified specific thresholds of significance. And each lead agency under CEQA develops their own thresholds, but it's based on those guidelines. And in addition to the thresholds of significance, there are certain impacts that are considered mandatory finding of significance. If you're having any impact to, let's say, a historic property that's on the National Register or the State Register of Historic Properties, that's a mandatory finding of significance. If you're having an adverse impact on endangered species, that's a mandatory finding of significance. So there's a whole list of mandatory findings of significance. You don't find that in NEPA. You can actually have an impact on endangered species and still do, if you meet all the other criteria, still do a CE or categorical exclusion under NEPA. You wouldn't be able to do that under CEQA because of the mandatory finding of significance. So how are impacts mitigated, and has the mitigation process changed over the years? When CEQA and NEPA were first written, the laws were fairly general. They were just requiring agencies to look at environmental issues and get public input before they made a decision. Over the years, 
they became more and more specific on things that you had to do. Like I mentioned, developing the mandatory findings of significance and the thresholds for significance under CEQA. Those came in later years. They're part of CEQA, but they were part of the changes that have occurred over the years. As far as mitigation is concerned, that's also has changed over the years. With CEQA, there is a requirement, as I mentioned, that if you have a significant impact, if you've exceeded the thresholds of significance that were identified by the lead agency, then you have to come up with mitigation. Mitigation can be, as I mentioned, avoidance, minimization, compensation, or enhancement. So avoidance is usually measures that are incorporated into a project as it's being designed to try and avoid as much as possible impacts to resources. Engineers do this all the time. They're incorporating these measures to try and avoid wetlands or a parkland or something like that, because they know if they go right through that, it's going to be a big time crunch for them. It's going to be very costly for them. So they try to avoid that. That's avoidance. Sometimes they can't avoid. And so they just minimize the impact. And if they can minimize that impact to a point where it doesn't exceed the threshold for significance, then they wouldn't have to do an EIR, Environmental Impact Report, or an EIS, Environmental Impact Statement under NEPA. That's an important consideration also for the transportation developers. They want to avoid those whenever they can because it costs so much money and takes so much time to go through that. And plus, they're trying to minimize the impact associated with the project. Avoidance and minimization are things that are built into the project to begin with. And sometimes you still have significant impacts, even though you've included avoidance and minimization measures. All the measures that you can possibly come up with there's still going to be a significant impact. You exceed the level of significance threshold determined by the resources agency. And that's when you have to look at compensatory mitigation. Compensatory mitigation has evolved over the years as more of the resource agencies have gotten involved through permitting that they do. A lot of times they come up with standardized mitigation measures. If you're impacting a certain species, there may be Fish and Wildlife Service or California Department of Fish and Wildlife may have specific measures that you can incorporate into the project or that you have to incorporate into the project in order to get your permit that you can pull in. Those would often be compensatory mitigation. It might include things like finding another property Let's say we have to go through a fringe part of a wetland area. You're having some wetland impacts. You might have to buy wetlands in another area and preserve that as wetland property. Or you might go in and restore wetlands in an area as compensatory mitigation for the impact that you could not avoid. And then I also mentioned enhancement that at times the impacts can be so great that resource agencies are looking at even more than just compensatory mitigation, but actually making up for it. An example would be if you're impacting oak woodland, it'll take hundreds of years to develop actual habitat that an oak tree provides. And so when you're mitigating for the loss of oak tree habitat, the agencies will often call for a ratio you're impacting one tree, you'll have to put in at least 10 to mitigate for that. And sometimes it's based on acreage, sometimes it's based on actual trees, depending on the, the area that's being impacted. But it's a ratio, and they look at that as enhancement to an area because you're making up for the time frame between when you plant these little seedlings to when they actually will provide habitat. That can sometimes be 20, 30, 40, 50 years easy before they're actually providing the habitat that the trees you cut down were providing. And so there's oftentimes enhancement of many, many acres beyond what you actually impacted. One of the things Caltrans was working on for many years, and I think they're still doing that, is what's called advanced mitigation where they actually start working to develop a mitigation bank where they protect an area or restore an area, allow the habitat to develop in that area, and they set that aside as mitigation for a future project, which hasn't even been funded yet. 
I worked on one of those projects up in the Monterey area where there were several transportation projects being looked at to do minor realignments of uh, roadways up in the Monterey area. Those realignments would have an impact on oak woodlands, maritime chaparral, sometimes wetlands, a lot of different habitat types. Working with the Elkhorn Slough Foundation in Monterey, we set up an advanced mitigation where we helped them purchase some property and restore that property as mitigation for this future project that hadn't even at that time hadn't even been funded. Sometimes those advanced mitigation things are very difficult to get through resource agencies. Coastal Commission is often very adverse to that because they think, well, if we just keep pushing this hard enough, we'll get both of those things. Uh, we'll protect the, the area that you're saying you're protecting, and we also won't have the impact. But we were able to even get Coastal Commission and all the resource agencies bought on to that and signed on to the advanced mitigation that we did with the Elkhorn Slough Foundation up there. So it was a, it was a big success. It costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of advanced planning. And it pays off in the end because if you can purchase that property early on, even before you have your actual project coming through, often the cost of purchasing an area for enhancement will be less than it would be if you waited until later in the years after you're actually building the project. Real estate prices go up so fast that sometimes it makes the mitigation more expensive than the project actually was. So what is the process today, briefly, of building a new road? What are the quick steps? If you're going to build a new road today, new roads are really unusual. But if you're going to build a new road, it starts with Caltrans and some of the advanced planning studies they do. They start looking at a whole system, the transportation system, and where are their weak spots in the transportation system. And they're not actually identifying specific projects, but areas that need to be looked at. Engineers take that and start doing early transportation studies to see how they could address some of those weaknesses that have been identified. Before it's an actual project, it needs to get into a regional transportation plan, which is like a 20-year plan put together by the Regional Transportation Planning Agency. And then as funding becomes available, and if the project ranks high enough in the Regional Transportation Plan, it's put into the Regional Transportation Planning Improvement Program or the State Transportation Improvement Program. Uh, depending on how the funding's coming in, and that actually funds a project. Then they can start doing the preliminary engineering and environmental document, and that starts the whole scoping process where Caltrans will contact agencies. They put out a notice of preparation, notice of intent, asking for input, saying, we're looking at improvements to this corridor right through here. Give us your input on what we should be studying, what kinds of issues you see, that need to be addressed. And that information that comes in from that is then used to develop a draft environmental document. If it's a new facility, it almost, in most cases, it would end up being an EIR and an EIS. And so that that's an important step to focus just what kinds of studies of what kind of emphasis the environmental document is going to be looking at. And that's based on the input we get from agencies and from the public. So a draft environmental document is put out. It's circulated to the public. In most cases, about 45-day circulation period gives the public and agencies a chance to review the document. That document is also sent through the resource agency that puts it out to any responsible agency. And that would be either a permitting agency or just an agency that might have some kind of interest in or be affected by a project in that area and ask for comments on that. And all of those comments are then brought in and have to be addressed in that draft environmental document. Based on the comments that come in, sometimes the environmental document is rewritten and recirculated again as a draft. In most cases, the comments are addressed in the draft. The preferred alternative is selected based on the comments that came in, and they put out a final environmental document. 
And that's the final CEQA and or NEPA determination of how they're going to proceed forward. So it's addressing all of the different alternatives they looked at, the impacts associated with all of those alternatives, the public input that's come in on that, and how they came up with a selected preferred alternative that they proposed to go forward with. If we were to look back, would you say CEQA and NEPA has changed the development of highways for the better? I guess I'm a little bit biased because I was an environmental planner, but I would say definitely it did. If you were to have asked engineers back in the late 70s, early 80s, whether CEQA was improving the transportation process, I think it would have been resoundingly no. But today, I think even if you ask project engineers if the CEQA and NEPA process have improved transportation projects, I think most of them would say yes, it has. Uh, and it has because we're getting more people looking at a project and offering suggestions. The more people looking at it creates a better project especially when you're looking at it from the standpoint of the experts in different areas that have the potential to be affected by a project. So the transportation engineers are great at what they do and the developing and designing a project, but they don't know anything about endangered species. They don't know anything about oak woodlands, and they don't know things about historic resources or archaeological sites. When you bring in experts in those other areas, that helps to make a project better. Oftentimes, if the engineers knew that those resources were there and all they had to do was go just a little bit to the left with their alignment or a little bit to the right or do some kind of measure to minimize the impact of the resources, they'd be more than happy to do that. They didn't have that opportunity before CEQA and NEPA because nobody ever asked anybody else and they weren't getting that input. If they had it, I think they would have incorporated it into the projects, but they didn't have that input. Now they have that input, and it makes for a better project. Before I came to District 5 in San Luis Obispo, there was a project to rebuild 101 through the Pismo Beach area. And I talked to the project engineer. This is many years afterwards. I talked to the project engineer because right in the middle of the freeway, there's one section where there's a big rock outcropping sticking up in the middle of the medium. And I asked the project engineer, why was that not taken out? Everywhere else in that area, there's just a narrow medium with now there's a medium barrier there. In that particular place, there's this big rock outcropping sticking up. And the engineer, you know, he thought it was ridiculous, but they couldn't get a property owner to agree to sell them the property. They were challenging it and forcing them to go through condemnation unless they preserved that rock outcropping. The engineers looked at the cost of going through condemnation or slightly realigning the highway to avoid the rock outcropping. And they decided, okay, it makes more sense. It's going to be less expensive to preserve the rock outcropping. And it's there. And now the whole thing is something that's important to the entire community. Everybody knows that's there and they love it. It's a neat feature that's associated with the highway. People love it. So the engineers didn't like it back then. But I think today they would say, oh, yeah, this adds uh, a visual feature in there that you've got this rock outcropping in the medium. It's not something you see all the time. There are those who feel that the environmental laws were the death of building new freeways and new roads in California. Do you think that's the case, or do you think um, the environmental laws actually improved what was coming out of Caltrans? I believe that CEQA really hasn't been the death of new major highways. There's a whole bunch of factors that went into that. I do think we're not going to see a whole lot of new major highways. It's going to be really rare that uh, we see a new major highway, but it's not necessarily because of CEQA. It's one of the factors that's been involved. I think a more important factor is the cost of right-of-way and construction today almost makes new major highways impossible to build. Caltrans has a hard enough time right now just coming up with the funding from the gas tax and everything to maintain what we already have. So there's money available to do improvements, but those improvements are almost always centered on just fixing what's already there because the cost of a whole new facility is so much greater. And there's not a, a big appetite in California or anywhere else in the country for new taxes. So 
there have been some increases, like some of the local regional transportation planning agencies have come up with a small increase in taxes to help support transportation. But most of that is not going for new facilities. It's going to upgrading existing facilities widening the existing facility because of operational congestion relief, safety projects, replacing bridges. We've got a whole series of bridges that are getting up there in age. After about 50 years, those bridges are probably going to have to be replaced, usually on the same alignment, because that's going to be less expensive. But the federal government's even having a hard time coming up with the funding to do all of those projects. Huge amount of money was just passed in the past year, the infrastructure plan, probably one of the biggest investments in infrastructure uh, that we've ever had at any one time. But it's mostly going to be fixing our existing roadways. So it's cost. Part of the, that increase in cost is things like environmental protections, CEQA. Uh, we, they, we cannot do the things that they, they once did where they came through and just said, okay, Public lands are less expensive as far as right-of-way is concerned. We'll put the highway through the public lands. Section 4F of the Transportation Act doesn't allow that unless you can show that there's no feasible or prudent alternative to doing that. That's a pretty tough nut to crack. So I think it's, it's many different things. I don't think the public has the appetite any longer for huge increases in taxes to fund transportation. And they also are more aware of the impacts associated with transportation facilities. And they want to, I I think the public wants to see a balance between providing transportation and balancing the impacts with that. So we can reduce the impacts as much as we can, but still get transportation facilities improved. And I think that's going to be focused almost entirely on the existing alignment or very close to it. One observation before the last question is I see a lot of parallels between what is being done in this entire environmental process and the process we see in other engineering disciplines of risk management and risk assessment and determining what is acceptable risk and mitigating risk. And it was just, I found it really interesting to see the parallels in my mind between those processes. And with that, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about CEQA, NEPA, NEPA? or the environmental process that we may have forgotten to ask you. I might have sounded like a little bit of a cheerleader for CEQA and NEPA. I do think that they were important acts, but I think that there are ways that they can be improved. I think that there's a lot of overlap that occurs. Sometimes there's a lot of redundancy in both CEQA and NEPA. There have been attempts to streamline the process and remove some of the redundancies. For example, you can have numerous resource agencies affecting the project all on the same resource. And it it seems like this could be combined. There should be a way to streamline that so that there could be less time spent in separate permits for a certain project, but still get input from those different resource specialties to make sure that the projects are addressing those issues. So I think it's just a reducing the bureaucracy a little bit uh, would really help to still meet the requirements of CEQA and NEPA, but reduce some of the time that's spent in dealing with that. So uh, even though I'm uh, fully supportive of both NEPA and CEQA and all the other uh, regulations that have come in since the 1960s, I think that it's still important for us to continue to look for ways to streamline the process. And I think it's also important for the people who are doing the the environmental analysis for transportation projects and and any other project to look at it from the standpoint of CEQA not being something to kill projects or NEPA uh, to kill projects, but to make them better. And so using the CEQA and NEPA process to try and find ways to improve the project as it's moving forward, not just to kill it. We've seen so much stuff, especially in recent years, there's more CEQA legal challenges that are being made, not to protect resources, but to try and kill a project. And often it's not by environmental activists. They're being sued, one business suing another business to try to use CEQA to prevent a business from getting moving forward. And I think that's the laws being, in some ways, being abused because of that. So using those laws to try and move good projects forward and make projects better uh, rather than just trying to kill things.
I'd like to thank you very much for your time today and talking to us about these laws. I know I have a much better understanding of the laws, and I see a lot of parallels to other areas, which I really found interesting. Tom? No, this has been great. I think this provides a really good understanding with SEPA and NEPA. Uh, I don't think it's something that's intuitive to a lot of people, so I definitely appreciate you breaking it down for us. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. Thank you, Gary, for that really interesting interview. And now we're going to return to the remainder of this podcast. As discussed with governance, we've also seen a change in focus. Statewide planning to coordinate at regional planning. Cities recommend projects to regional planning agencies. So some examples would be the city of Los Angeles to Metro, the city of San Jose to the RTC, Oxnard to the DCTC. Regional transportation agencies prepare recommendations and recommend funding and sources. The CTC consolidates these recommendations to programs like the State Highway Operation and Protection Program, which is known as SHOP, the State Protection Improvement Plan, or STIP. The CTC then approves the projects in SHOP and STIP for funding and allocates funds. And you'll see these when I post things like the change log for my highway pages, where I go through the minutes and I say, oh, they've approved for future allocation of funding, this project. They've amended the shop or the stip to add in this project. This is where these come into play. And you can find both the shop and the stip online at, off the Caltrans website. As discussed with the governance, we've also seen changes in focus. Highways to transportation to complete streets. So what we've seen is the notion of going from just building roads to now we're going to consider roads and railroads and transit, to now we're going to talk about complete streets. And complete streets is the notion that roads are just more than the automobile, more than just the train. It includes things like bike paths and pedestrians and ADA accessibility and other forms of mass transit. And if you look at projects coming out today, you'll now see not only just freeways being built, but you might see a bike path on the side of the freeway. This is being done, for example, on the uh, 101 in Santa Barbara. You're going to see construction of bike overcrossing. There's some of this being done in Palo Alto. I think Tom's seeing some of this in Fresno, where they're making some of the improvements they're doing on the roads there include better access for pedestrians for crossing the streets or some of the ADA improvements. Quite a bit of Measure C uh, was involved with those improvements. Okay. So these new projects include these elements. So you'll see a lot more ADA accessibility. You'll see a good example of this pedestrian access and bike path. I want to say it's where they just built that new roundabout and overpass or spooly over near Route 120. They included all sorts of improvements to make it easier for the public to cross the freeway. You're also seeing it in things like planned busways. Before we go into the next time, Tom, do you want to talk about anything you've seen in this regional area or this move to complete streets and how it's impacted things? So I mentioned Measure C, um, which which didn't pass for renewal in Fresno County, um, but a lot of the projects that they did have listed included things like pedestrian paths and like one by my house would have extended one for several miles in both directions. So like here in Fresno, one of the largest complaints that I've seen since I've moved here is just it's very difficult to get around either on a bike and or by foot. And as a distance runner, I can attest that that is actually very much a thing. So it's kind of interesting seeing the difference in some of the larger cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Jose, and kind of seeing how like that stuff's been there for a while and how we're just starting to get it locally. And I think you're seeing that change of focus also. In the major cities, I see it in the projects I'm seeing approved in the Bay Area. Certainly, there's a lot of emphasis on this. I think you're even seeing it in some of the projects. I, I want to say there's a project being done up in Eureka for complete streets or up in the Arcata area on 101 that they're really trying to improve the street access. There are a few other projects where this is now becoming a major part of the planning process. Next on the California Highways Route by Route, we've completed our review of the history of the highway system. Now we turn our attention to numbers. Have you ever wondered why the state routes were numbered as they are? Is there a plan for the numbering? Was there a plan? Next time, we look at the numbering system of the California state routes. And that will start a whole series of episodes on the numbering. We'll look at the state routes and anything related to numbering in the state. So we'll cover post miles. 
We'll look at how U.S. highways are numbered. We'll look at how interstates are numbered. And we'll look, look at the county signed route system briefly. For more information, visit the chronology section over on cahighways.org. Most of the Gribble Nation blogs in California touch upon some of the later stuff that's been done on the highway system, especially where some of the routes have now been relinquished in the future. Tom also has some good blogs where he talks about some of the major renumbering changes. I want to say you've got some on the big San Diego renumberings in there and certainly on the Sacramento renumberings. We do. Uh, it gets pretty complex and disorderly as time goes on. We'll have links to the relevant information on the show page at caroutebyroute.org. And as always, details for the specific routes we have mentioned are on the specific route pages on cahighways.org and gribblenation.org. As always, information on the episode is always available on our website, caroutebyroute.org, where you can also leave us a comment on each episode. This episode is also available on our Anchor FM home, anchor.fm forward slash caroutebyroute. Join us as we continue to explore California highways route by route. This episode was written by Daniel Fagan and Tom Fear, edited and produced by Daniel Fagan. Our opening theme is I'd Like to Be by the Seaside by John H. Lubbert Kind. Do you have an opening theme you think might be good for our show and is either in the public domain or you're willing to let us use? If so, contact me at daniel at caroutebyroute.org. Episodes are recorded using freeconferencecall.com. This podcast is a product of California Highways at cahighways.org and gribblenation at gribblenation.org. Is there anything else you'd like to add at the end of the episode, Tom, talking about this period from basically 1969 on in the state highway system? I think that this era is misunderstood by a lot of people in a modern sense. Um, people look at the 50s and the 60s, especially the early 60s, and see a lot of construction uh, and don't really understand why that slowed. Uh, and I think this kind of explains in this podcast why that's a thing. Um, there's a lot of moving parts and pieces that went into this that slowed construction, not just in California, but just in general. So I think it's good if you're into highways having a complete picture because it's something I've kind of noticed in the community that there's a real big misunderstanding uh, why things are the way they are. There is a reason, and I think it's important that people, if you follow highway history, that you understand it. Far too many people, I think, like to look at a map and say, oh, we should have a highway between here and there because that line looks good on the map. And people don't understand all the things that go into it from right-of-way costs to just the terrain and the construction, to the environmental impacts, to even whether there would be enough demand to justify the construction costs. And I think this episode shows how our planning moved to take that into account. And with that, we will see you in the next episode sometime in January when we start going into the patterns and the numbering of California highways. And it's an interesting area. It's one of the reasons that I really got into this hobby of asking myself, all right, why is the route numbered that way? And if I leave you anything to ponder on between episodes, think about it this way. Look at each state and ask yourself, where is Route 1 and why is it Route 1, if indeed there is a Route 1? Mm-hmm.